Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Organized in conjunction with Charles Marville, photographer of Paris, this symposium, held on December 6, 2013 at the National Gallery of Art, offers new perspectives on art and urbanism in 19th century Paris. An international panel of art, architectural, and literary historians addressed the transformation of 19th century Paris in papers that focus on diverse topics, including the representation of Parisian quarries in 19th century photography, painting, and literature, the formative role of architect Gabriel David in reshaping Paris, the use of photography to map the changing city, new modes of transportation that shaped the experience and representations of the city, the impact of 19th century photography of Paris on 20th century film, and the relationship between Marville's urban documentation and contemporary photographic practice. The fourth lecture was given by Hollis Clayson, Samuel H. Crest Professor, 2013-2014, Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts, National Gallery of Art. Look, despite that um, stately um, title slide of mine, this is not um, what would qualify as an account of Marville's street lamp photographs. My remarks instead enumerate six issues that I selected because they touch upon prior interpretations of this body of work and aspects of the sometimes paradoxical tie between Marville's lamp photos and their ostensible referent, the illumination by the state of the city of Paris. Now, my first slide here, this is issue number one. Um, some of you who heard my lecture on Monday will see that I got so much commentary from my PowerPoint being really too, too glitzy. I've gone back to complete black and white sobriety. Um, anyway, this is my first issue, um, and as you can see, it invokes categories of the aesthetic and of, the, and of style. But even before I engage that... Um, I want to look at one of these um, beautiful photographs and um, use it um, as a sort of signboard for my presentation of the basic facts about the lamps and Marville's photos of them. He took about 90 different photographs of various kinds of new gas lamps installed in the city of Paris during the Second Empire. It appears that he inaugurated the work um, when he assumed the title, you all have already heard about this, the title of the Photographe de la Ville de Paris, which happened in 1862. So these photos were made for the most part between about 1861 and the early uh, 1870s, but some were taken all the way into the later 1870s. So look, so while these street lamp photos were taken during the intense, while most of them were taken during the intense phase of public works enhancements of the second half of the 20-year-long Second Empire, um, Marville's photographic account of the city's street furniture, the way we um, tend to translate mobilier urbain, did not end with the fall of the empire. We know, for example, that his urinal campaign, oh, I guess that doesn't sound so good. Um, anyway, his, his photographs, um, his series on the, the Vespasien, the, anyway, extremely um, useful um, public urinals, useful if you were, well, not too useful to women, but anyway. Um, we know from the late date of, of that campaign that he kept photographing into uh, uh, street furniture into the uh, beginning of the Third Republic. 
Now, according to the opposite uh, service, um, the service des promenades et plantations of this moment, and that was the, the group that was charged with installing the new street furniture, which of course included the street lamps, the, um, the, the mobilier urbain was defined exactly as, quote, the ensemble of objects or devices or apparatuses, public or private, installed in public space and tied to a function or a service offered to the collectivity. Um, some of my colleagues have already implied rightly that Gabriel Daviou was a key figure in this realm. Uh, Adolphe Alphand played a major role in the specific realm um, of éclairage, uh, of, of lighting. A few more sort of straightforward uh, uh, bits of information here before we dive into the interpretation. One of the richest troves of street plant photos resides in the collection of the Musée Carnavalet in Paris. Um, that collection um, possesses at least 38 tirages of these photos. And the other richest repository is in the BHVP, the, the, the Library of the History of the City of Paris. Another point. While Marville's photos of the two different kinds of these lamps, the reverbère, which is a single, like what you see here, and candelabre, candelabras with multiple globes, um, the, the new gas lampposts, are what are, are, are what are usually taken to comprise the street lamp corpus. We should remember that his photographs also recorded older street lamp forms and technologies as well. I'll point out um, some other kinds of lamps when we get there. It's so important to remember, um, maybe in the spirit of the last talk of the, of the morning, that um, you know, um, shiny, um, uh, famous, beloved Paris was not born in the Second Empire. Um, Paris had, after all, been lit with gas since the July monarchy. The July monarchy, for those of you who don't um, have every single date in French history committed to memory, the, French, uh, the July monarchy um, held sway from 1830 to 1848. Actually, the very first gas light illuminated in Paris was at the very end of the Restoration in 1829, it's also easy to forget that Paris was plenty slow in um, adopting gaslighting. Um, they certainly, Paris certainly trailed behind London, for example. But eventually, um, the number of gaslights began to proliferate during the July monarchy, especially in the 1840s, to the degree that, here comes a specific number, by 1852, the city had 13,733 reverbères. The blossoming of lights, that particular blossoming of lights, pushed the French capital's old 18th century Enlightenment era nickname, the City of Light, in French, La Ville Lumière, for the first time into the realm of the descriptive. To be clearer, Paris was regarded as an exceptionally brightly and beautifully lit city years before Napoleon III, Georges-Eugène Haussmann, Adolphe Alphand, and Gabriel Daviou went to work. The expanded system of éclairage put in place during the Second Empire was intended to guarantee the security of the city's inhabitants 
but it also, especially as increasingly conjoined with the burgeoning light of private commerce, enhanced the reputation of Paris as a headquarters of display, luxury, and enjoyment, and gave birth to the notion of nightlife as both a social and discursive category. By 1870, when Haussmann was relieved of his duties, here comes another one of these wonderful specific numbers, Paris had exactly 20,766 reverbères. There were 78 variants of lamp distributed across the city, a rich declension of seven basic models. The systematic use of uh, cast iron and consistent brown color, sometimes heightened with touches of gold, facilitated the integration of this, these variants of lamps into a coherent ensemble. That's according to uh, a, a key historian of the buildings of this era, François Loyer. Um, he notes that a few lamps in particularly prestigious locations, like the courtyard of the Louvre, were cast bronze. Um, Back to my title here. Where did this come from? Looking closely at Marville's street lamp photos, I've, well, you get the idea of my title here, Back to a Lamp. I, I was struck over and over again. I was struck by the human scale of the street lights in these photographs, a scale that Marville's angle of view and framing worked to define and uphold. I regard his photographs of these exquisitely surrounded and isolated individual machines as portraits. Yes, portraits in the full sense of the word. I was also struck by the consistency of his visual language in these, in these pictures. I'm going to show you lots of them just momentarily. The consistency, the regularity of his approach to photographing the lamps. Sarah Kennel has written in her terrific um, catalog that Marville used, quote, distinctive pictorial strategies designed to provide maximum visual data, end quote. I won't disagree with that, but I'll shift the terms um, somewhat here. I would say that the photos have a distinctive style. Also important and relevant in this regard was my discovery in that wonderful exhibition that Mogville's street lamp photo style was honed and fully adumbrated by the aesthetic of his earlier photos of very different motifs. Now let's go through these photos, and, um, and I hope you'll see what I mean. What I'm um, underscoring here is frontality, centrality, balance, and symmetry. That's the same one in a different, uh, different uh, tirage. Okay, now you'll see he used a cognate approach to another kind of street furniture, Morris column, as they were called after their inventor. I just I'll put one in here so you can see some variety of street furniture. But really, walking through Sarah Kennel's exhibition, I, I came across this sequence one, two, three, four, five, six pictures of very different kinds of motifs. In this case, um, you see this little um, hut and um, sleeve tree in the botanical gardens. 
And I was struck, well, I'm not, we'll see if you agree with me, I was struck by the way in which that, that, that uh, protected tree occupies the same kind of centrality, has the same kind of presence that eventually um, is accorded to, is invented for the streetlights. I had the same reaction of all things to this um, lineup of, uh, of relics from Reims Cathedral. I thought the way, in way, the way in which this central relic was arranged and the kind of presence it was accorded by the photograph made me think of his achievement in the street lamp photographs. I was also struck too by the presence of this post in the Bois de Boulogne, um, it, 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 it suggested the same kind of um, style, the same kind of approach, that centrality, that sobriety. Even here, the placement of that tree right at the center of the picture in front of the Chateau of the Bagatelle. Even more, you'll think that maybe this is, this is far-fetched, but um, the, the spire of Notre Dame seemed to me was already, as it were, a kind of stylistic placeholder um, for the lamp photos to come. And even though this is slightly askew, not directly centered, there's a way in which, you know, Viollet-le-Duc's um, enhancement to the roof of Notre Dame here, the way in which that angel, even though slightly off to the left so it doesn't overlap the spire, also has a kind of street lampness um, avant la lettre. And in some of the architectural photos, here I'm, I'm offering up um, two different kinds of photographs, two compositions, um, which record the Fontaine des Innocents, the frontality, centrality, balance. And again, in this view, um, again, um, uh, aesthetic preparation, if you will, um, for the street lamp uh, campaign to come. And back to one of those street lamps um, while I take this, my next point here. So it turns out Hausman and his street lamp team had strong views about the look, size, and placement of the new street lights. Hausman, for one, had no patience with pedestals and sockles on the bottom of the lamps. He wanted even to remove the fancy pedestals from some of the most prestigious lamps in Paris, Hittorf's. He was, he was wishing he could rip off the bottoms and get them flat on the ground. He didn't win. Anyway, um, he preferred that the lamps be down on the ground, just like a person, I would want to add. In the words, again, of the indispensable François Loyer, placed on the ground... The réverbère multiplied infinitely, formed a graphic landscape of a subductive abstraction, end quote. And here, of course, Haussmann's optic, um, as according to Loyer, parts company with what I'm saying about Marville. Yes, there are uh, Marville photos of the broad new boulevards um, that you all know. One that Min Lee showed this morning of the Rue de Rivoli did actually show street lamps functioning in that infinite multiplication um, evoked here. But um, uh, in the ones of the Boulevard Haussmann, um, it's not street lamps, it's trees, right? But my point remains that in the individual lamp portraits, such as this one on the screen, it's the down on the streetness, the nose to nose with the passerby ness 
of Marville's individual lamp portraits that really are the striking features. According to Loyer, the Hausmanni and Reberber retained a human scale for reasons that were both technical, having to do with the, aluma, with the lighting um, process itself and with sculptural concerns. Um, and my point is that that particular human scale is scrupulously and tenderly maintained by Marville. The time of day, of course, in all these photographs contributes to the humanization of each machine, more on matters of time of day in what, what follows here. Oh, that's a little bit uh, Delphic. Um, so uh, one of the things that's most immediately obvious and has to be addressed is that this, um, this corpus of, of street lamp photographs never shows any of them illuminated. They're all photographed, shut off, not lit during the day. Now, in order to get to the point I want to make with this, I have to just circle back one inch and, and say a little bit more about Haussmann's um, éclairage aesthetic. This is, again, in the wonderful language of Francois Loyer. This, his forest of iron trees spreads a cloth of regular light around the night of which the beauty depends on the scale. Um, so, end quote, this rather poetic expression drives home the great, the irreconcilable paradox of Marville's street lamp photos. Unlike, you know, this beautiful Brassai photograph of the Pont Neuf made in 18, 1932, well into the era when um, f photography at night under artificial light was indeed um, technologically possible. Um, uh, uh, Marville's lamps are not lit. They're, as, as it were, they're off-duty. And as such... They're like actors before they step on the stage or after they've stepped off. They're seen in an amateur or day off or time out persona. It's as though all of those streetlights are, are waiting, um, in a sense, rehearsing for what's to come. Or they appear to be forlorn has-beens documented when the time of performance, the night, has been erased by the return of day. They're functionless urban warriors in iron and glass, about the same size as and sharing the pavement with the uh, passing strollers. So it seems to me, the more I thought about this, that Marville's street lamp photos are all prelude and no performance. They're required tools of the great optical fact of 19th century urban modernity, namely the alternation between light and dark, which is the basis of the century's visual spectacle. So one way to um, put it might be to say that Marville's lamp photos thus show us modernization, but not modernity. Which takes me to um, point number three, gaslight and as entertainment in the City of Light, 
Marville's photos of uh, Walter Benjamin's Passage or Walter Benjamin's Arcades. These are in uh, the exhibition, these two wonderful photographs of the um, Passage de l'Opéra, let's go back to the other one, are in the exhibition. And um, while I was looking at them and thinking about the sort of the status of the arcades in the modernity of 19th century Paris, I decided it would be germane for us to consider the gaslighting fixtures documented in this milieu of ancien Paris, namely things that were built and illuminated prior to this um, era that we're focusing upon, namely the Second Empire and its massive public works enterprises. So we're looking here in the two slides that have toggled back and forth at the Passage de l'Opéra um, that has not survived, but it endured long enough to house many of the key meetings and conversations um, of the Surrealists in Paris in the 1920s. This was really their arcade. The arcades that Marville photoed in daytime, he had no other choice. You couldn't photograph at night until the 1890s. Anyway, the, the arcades that Marville photoed in daytime acquired their signature identity and capacity to enchant, nay, bewitch, especially at night when the gas jets were lit. Their appearance and function are at the very heart of the most influential account of the modernity of 19th century Paris, that of, many of you know this, the 20th century German literary critic Walter Benjamin. The arcade itself is a building type that proliferated in early 19th century Paris before Haussmann's grand boulevards were constructed and new kinds of commerce lined their edges. Typically sheltered, the arcades, beneath iron and glass roofs, the arcade was a block-long pedestrian passage nestled between two masonry structures lined on either side with small shops, tea rooms, amusements, and other kinds of commercial attractions. At one time, there were more than 300 arcades in Paris. Now, maybe about 30 of them now remain, most of them clustered on the right bank in the first and second arrondissement. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you have uh, walked through the surviving ones. The arcade represented a pivotal moment in modern social and economic history. That sounds, that sounds exceptionally important. I think, I think that's right. With it, right, with the arrival of the arcades, capitalist society began its transition from a culture of production to one of consumption. Beneath the arcade's greenhouse roof, the technical apparatus of the industrial society was used to furnish images and products, images of and products in stating, let's say, desire. This was the laboratory of what Benjamin came to call, influentially, the phantasmagoria. The glittering transparent arcades, especially when lit up at night, chock full of goods on sale, encouraged Benjamin to conceive of the 19th century as a dream, actually a kind of nightmare, from which we 21st century moderns have yet to wake up. We're still bewitched by the commodity. Maybe we'll trade stories about who spent more money on Cyber Monday after I finish talking. I'll bet I won. Anyway, um, indeed, final point. 
the arcade and flickering gas jets were really an integral totality. It's somewhat uncanny to see daytime images of them. Indeed, the places and institutions most associated across the city with luxury were the first to benefit from, to use gaslight. Arcades, um, the Grand Boulevard, the Grand Boulevard network, which was actually an old 18th century network that was given a new lease on life in the 19th century. Various shops, cafes, restaurants, theaters. Um, that's where um, there was, from the first decades of the 19th century, the greatest concentration of night illumination. And nocturnal pedestrians of the gaslight era recalled the impression of living in conditions of a perpetual festival as if they had been transported to a fictional city. Lighting, éclairage, is one of the key components of the Parisian enchantment that Benjamin studied, the primary and most efficient way to attract attention. Our encounter with Marc Ville's photos of, of just exactly one of these um, important spaces, institutions, architectural structures, requires an act of projection or imagination on our part to endow them, you might say, to re-endow them with those singular properties. There's that other photograph. I have a, a, one small um, further thought um, on... Uh, on the question of, uh, well, you'll see we're on a, you'll see where I'm going here. On the on the question of, uh, on the question of Marville's photos, and the category of, uh, and the category of public works. Um, I've got uh, two urinals here. Let's let's focus on this one. The presence of a of a person there. Um, would require um, more interpretive elan than I have um, on tap today. Let's do this. Um, an amazing book was written in 2010, maybe some of you know it, by someone named Michael Rubenstein. It's entitled Public Works, Infrastructure, Irish Modernism, and the Post-Colonial. Well, it, 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 you, you'll never read James Joyce again because it explains that it's actually all about the imbrication in the electricity grid. Um, anyway, Rubenstein very cleverly calls our attention to the productive ambiguity he finds in the definition of public works. And he also reminds us that the word infrastructure, which I have a tendency to use all the time, is a word that was born in the 1930s. It, did, it, it, it was an artifact of the, the, the Roosevelt administration in the United States. Anyway, so when we're talking about this, these interventions, public works is the proper nomenclature. On the one hand, this is again uh, according to Rubenstein's fascinating analysis, on the one hand, public works are things that are prerequisite for the existence of the great society. But on the other th hand, they are things that result from the existence of the great society. It occurred to me that Marville's photos of the Vespasien, uh, of the, the, the public uh, urinals of Paris in this year, allow us, really, if we think about it, to absorb and ruminate upon both sides of public works in the time and place where they were more or less invented. 
Now, my next uh, uh, issue is, in fact, an issue that allows me to take issue from this proposition that appears in, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is he Eric Hazan or is he Eric Hazan? I don't know. Anyway, the, the translated um, version of the book is The Invention of Paris. It's a, it's a splendid, it's an indispensable book. But it, it contains this proposition that really got me thinking. As you can see there, if you want Baudelarian images of Paris, it's not in Marville's photos that you should look, but rather in Manet. Hmm, I thought to myself, that someone has just thrown down, thrown down a gauntlet. So here's my next move, which is, of course, going to seem contradictory. Um, so even though so far I have insisted, haven't I, on the gap between Marville's public works photos and Benjaminian Paris, now I'm going to take a gingerly step in the direction of suggesting that there's a link between Marville's Paris and Baudelaire's Paris. So this, 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 this is one of the photographs that gave me the most sort of was the most stimulating in the exhibition. Here's um, well, you can see that it's labeled, um, but maybe you don't know that the Rousseau flow was um, was finished. Maybe you know just immediately before this photograph was taken, it was had it was new, newly paved, newly extended. It was pulled down to intersect with the boulevard we just heard about before lunch, the Boulevard Saint-Michel. So we're looking at a newly extended, newly paved, and newly edged with new lamps um, stretch of road, uh, a sort of Haussmannian space par excellence. And in this case, you really can see it doesn't take much detective work, the degree to which um, uh, the ghosts of... of, uh, of presences of human and maybe mechanical presences on that new road are there to be seen. So I started thinking, here it comes. So I started thinking, now it, this is going to require a lot of art historical fancy footwork, um, but Gustav Kaibat was a colleague of Manet's and in some ways I'm going to sort of put him in the place of the Manet that Eric Hazen um, uh, said we should look at. A lot of us have spent a lot of time insisting that this painting by Kaibot that you see there in the lower left-hand corner, which is made exactly the same time as Marville is photographing the brand-new, um, just-extended Rousseau-Flot, we spent so much time identifying that Kaibot with um, a certain kind of anomie of inhabiting um, the new, the newly um, built um, spaces of Paris, the anomie, the the, the despondency um, uh, of taking um, the, your Baudelarian bath in the crowd, and I also began thinking. Um, some of you know that I've been thinking about this for a long time. Right in the oh, um, right in the center, right of that canvas. It's also a painting in Chicago, so I, that's where I live. I see it often. Right in the middle of that painting is that, right? I mean, in some ways, it's the, in some ways, it's a kind of dominant presence in the painting. It's this vivid presence of the all-seeing eye of the solitary, unlit street lamp that sort of um, towers over everything else in the picture. And when I began thinking about this, I began thinking, 
how can I say that Marville's photos don't really deliver that frisson of, uh, of, of allow us to sort of catapult back into 19th century modernity just because they're shot during the day? I mean, in some ways, this picture, with its somewhat ominous, puzzling, and um, astonishingly centrally placed unlit street lamp, has kind of delivered that kind of that kind of jolt of nineteenth um, century modernity. So maybe um, uh, I need to reevaluate a bit and think that the unlit street lamps bar- bordering the newly paved Rue Soufflo are on a par with. Um, the uh, the function of the street lamp in this um, sort of uh, exemplary presentation of strolling in um, uh, just completed house money in Paris. Anyway, that's a thought piece. And then I thought, while I was on this particular way of thinking, now this picture, one of the again one of the pictures in the current exhibition that really stopped me dead in my tracks, I thought. The degree to which this picture, which is of course a different, you know, a different kettle of fish from the other things I've been looking at, there's there's a way in which that streetlight, that solitary streetlight, somehow has a kind of not just human presence, which I've already been suggesting is the is typical of all of these street lamp photos, but there's a way in which it stands for, it signs, it signals desolation. The same way that, you know what's coming next, you art history students. That solitary street lamp, that solitary, unlit, isolated street lamp out in Les Zones around Paris, that um, that uh, young fellow just arriving in Paris, Vincent van Gogh, used in his picture of um, desolation um, in its purest form, right? Empty space and a single street light. So, um, and I'm using Van Gogh here as a sort of actor on, beha- on behalf of the sort of Baudelairean Paris. And then I had to include this too. I'm still trying to work this through. It's another one of um, Van Gogh's works from his very active and productive couple of years in Paris. Another image um, of uh, a, a zone, an area of Paris up the, up the hill of Montmartre in which um, modernity... Um, is in fact uh, established by this strange wobbly line of unlit street lamps. So the unlit street lamp of Marville and the unlit street lamp of Caibat and Van Gogh might sort of be um, a sort of congenial, conjoined Baudelairean trio, even though, you know, he's not Benjaminian, but I think there might be some Baudelairean um, uh, part to be reckoned with. All right, so now um, here's another issue. This was, um, again, Eric Hazen. Um, He was talking, those of you who know Roland Barthes' work on photography will recognize this sentiment and what he says here. The photograph confers a special importance on the actual referent of the image, something that was once there for a moment and now has no doubt changed, perhaps even disappeared. Uh, uh, This has been um, evoked by a couple of my colleagues already today. And we know um, very much it's something that um, uh, uh, attaches to accounts of uh, many of Marville's photos, that we are attracted to them because they figure things that don't exist anymore. And they give us a kind of time tunnel um, into an encounter with artifacts that are gone. Well, I, um, 
My friend Francoise uh, Reynaud, who's the curator of photographs at uh, the Musée Carnavalet, put a document in my hand um, which allowed me to do something a little bit mischievous. Here it comes. They hired a, um, a research assistant a couple of years ago, a young woman named Ellen Lausanne, and she was put on the task, even before Peter Sramek, um, a book that a lot of you know, in which a Min Lee essay appears, got on this um, campaign of re-photographing where Atche and Marville had photographed in Paris. Anyway, this young intern was sent off um, to find, if possible, the location of every single one of the street lamp photographs. And you know what she found? This is, you see, my tendency to look for a reversal again is that a whole lot of them still exist. <laughs> so that um, the idea that Marville's campaigns are largely of things that are gone, th you can take a big piece out of that if you um, have an energetic intern who can go around and um, check things out for you. So the, the, the glorious Hittorf um, uh, fixtures are, of course, still there. Um, this solitary reverbère um, near the Louvre, it's still there. <laughs> this beautiful candelabra in the Cour du Louvre. Here it comes. It's still there. This um, torchère, this beautiful um, iron torchère, also um, uh, near the, the in the courtyard of the Louvre. It's a little beaten up, but there it is. It's still there. Well, it's more than a little beaten up. This was under construction at the time. Um, this, uh, we saw this when um, Min showed us the uh, Leal de Baltar this morning. It's, I mean, and, and this is another example of something that is sort of held onto and a marker is sort of put in its place, but it's been transformed in some kind of God knows what, a lamp that pays homage to headgear worn on the Western Front during the First World War. I, I don't know. Anyway, so here it's there, but transformed. And then we move into the more familiar territory, lamps um, that were there that are completely gone, and the area is transformed. So this goes back. This sort of plays into the, the more familiar account of um, photos of things that are gone. Another, uh, this one, the Canal Saint-Martin, completely transformed, gone. Um, this thing at the entrance to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, complete with the torso of the, whatchamacallit, um, the Belvedere torso, gone, really gone. This, um, this wonderful torchère that includes a, a signage for a mailbox, <laughs> uh, an area completely transformed. Anyway, um, here's, my, here's my very last point, and it's more of a coda than um, it's point number six. And this is my um, uh, au revoir point. Um, another thing that um, it, it is in circulation, um, you know, Sarah Kennel, of course, is, is too smart to um, not have commented on this. She talks about this matter in her catalog essay, and I just wanted to reinforce her point. Um, someone like Eric, um, however you pronounce his name, E.H. there, um, published as recently as 2010 um, the proposition that Marville's photographs are the only major visual souvenir that remains of a Paris that has completely disappeared. Well, I've already showed you that a lot of Paris that he photographed hasn't disappeared, but it's also important to remember that in these years, 
photography and other graphic art technologies were very much enmeshed in one another in a situation of collaboration, borrowing, mirroring, and this um, important series done in the 1860s by um, Adolphe Potemont Martial, who usually called himself A.P. Martial Potemont in his work, um, uh, indeed produced this etched series in the 60s, right, in the heyday of the Second Empire, which um, also took as its job to record the appearance of um, parts of the city that were gone or were going, and many of its sheets were, in fact, based directly on Marville's photographs. But this set of 300 etchings, in fact, has the same kind of palimpsestic um, uh, relationship that we see in many of uh, Marville's things. And it also reminds us, they're too complicated to say much more about, um, uh, but uh, again, it reminds us that even though our job for the day is to think very specifically about an achievement, amazing achievement within the medium of photography in, um, in Paris, capital of the 19th century, um, it was in many ways Paris, cap capital of, um, of uh, reproduction, exchange, borrowing, mirroring, and the uh, blending and enmeshment of medium with medium. Anyway, that's point number six, and thank you for your kind attention. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.